Welcome back to our Monday morning Tanya class. We are about to begin a new section of the Tanya, which deals with the hidden love within every Jew. Hidden love? Hidden love love. within the hearts of every Jew. Starting with a quick recap, in the first eight chapters we described the two souls that exist in every Jew, the godly soul and the animal soul. And we spoke about um, the definition of good and bad, namely, is it something that brings Hashem or reveals Hashem in our lives, or is it something that hides Hashem? And that really is the Hasidic definition of good or bad, because everything ultimately is, comes from God. There is no force in this world other than God. But the difference between good and bad is whether it's an energy that is causing Hashem to be more revealed or to be more hidden. That would be somewhat of a summary of the first eight chapters. In chapters 9 through 12, we described the battle, the battle of the two souls, who is going to be the driver of our lives. Chapter 10 described the tzaddik, who is completely controlled by his godly soul. Chapter 11 described the rasha, who is completely controlled by his animal soul. And chapter 12 described the bedini, who is controlled in some areas by his godly soul. In some ways, he's like the tzaddik, and that's in the way he acts. And in other ways, like the Russia, that's in how he feels. Chapters 13 and 14 and onwards, we begin to describe what is expected of the Bedidim, or what is the life of a Bedidim. And the Tanya is called a book for Bedidim, and Bedidim means two things. It means that it's for everybody, it's for the average person, it's for the in-betweeners, the person who's neither a saint nor a sinner. But it also, Bedidim means that it's a person's achieved a level where he is already in some way like a tzaddik. Maybe in other ways still like a rasha, but in some ways like a tzaddik. So really from chapter 12, or maybe 13, 14, we begin to uh, really put forth a plan of action for me and you of how we could be better Jews. Chapter 12, we spoke about a few tools that we could utilize, like the power of mind over heart, the power of prayer, and then in chapter 13, more about letting Hashem into our lives, because without Him, we wouldn't stand a chance. Chapter 14, we described how every person can be a Benini at any moment. We spoke about, and then from here we go into, not just that every person can be a Benini, but being a Benini is actually quite an achievement. It's quite a level. So there's kind of two ways to look at it. On the one hand, at any moment, we could all be a Benini. On the other hand, to be a Benini requires tremendous work. So the reason we can be abandoned at any given moment is because at every moment we have the ability to control ourselves. And as long as we control how we act, how we speak, or even what we actively think about, then we are abandoned on the one hand. On the other hand, although we can do that at any given moment, in order to actually do it at every moment is, uh, requires a lot of work. So what is the work of abandoned? And that led us to chapter 50 that described how Hashem prefers the server of Hashem to the one who does not serve. And the way the Tanya explained it was that the one that does not serve is actually the tzaddik. Because he's already a saint and therefore it's not coming through hard work. It's just coming naturally. As opposed to the person who works hard, that's the one that Hashem favors. And we spoke about that in chapter 15. So what are the exercises that we can um, engage in in order to achieve becoming a Benedi, meaning 
reaching the level of a Bedidi, not just acting like a Bedidi at any given moment, but actually uh, re- refining ourselves to be on the level of a Bedidi. So in chapter 16 and 17, we said that four steps. Study, think, feel, do. Firstly, we need to allocate times to study about Hashem. And we get, when we spoke about that, in our first class to chapter 16, we discussed, is God a belief or is God something that we believe or something that we know? And, and, and the answer that we suggested was that although we all do have a belief in God, but that could be very much um, uh, irrelevant to our day-to-day living. Like the classic example the Gemara gives that the thief, before he uh, robs, he turns to God and he says, God, please let me be successful. How does that happen? He believes in God, but it's very removed from his day-to-day living. So he, he knows there's a God, but it's something so distant from him that he's going to live his life doing the exact opposite of what Hashem wants. And that's what every Jew has as a believer in God. But to actually know God requires study. As long as we don't study about him, then we won't know him. So I know he exists. I don't just believe he exists. I know he exists. I've studied. I've learned a lot about him. That now he is a significant reality in my life. That's the first of the four steps. To study about God. Step two is to think about it. To reflect. To take time. And even a couple of seconds. Specifically before davening. And to think about the fact that God really does exist. And how he exists in my life. And the Tanya said that if we take the first two steps, number one, we study about Hashem, and number two, where we reflect and think about Him, then we will develop some level of a feeling for Hashem. And even if it's not a full-blown feeling, it will be enough of a feeling that um, affects our actions. This is a summary of chapter 16 and 17. So how do we achieve the level of abedity? By committing our minds to learn about Hashem, so much so that we feel it in our hearts and it changes how we act. Comes chapter 18 and asks, what about somebody who does not have the mental ability to be able to study about Hashem and then to reflect on that until he eventually has a feeling and has transformed actions? Before I proceed to clarify again this continuous question that I've had over the years of the study of Tanya, and a question that many people ask in many different forms, and that is, what's more important, the action or the feeling? And the answer really is that they both need each other. And so, yes, to be a Bedini is really all about action, but to be able to succeed in our actions we need to have a feeling. If there's no feeling, then there's no motivation. So then how are we going to do the action? Yes, like the analogy I've given, if somebody asked me, am I able to get up tomorrow morning at, let's say, 4 a.m. and go, uh, go running? I can. There's nothing stopping me. But will I? I won't. Because why should I? <laughs> because it's cold and it's dark. and it's, 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 I don't have the motivation to do so. So... If you tell me that if I do, you'll give me a million dollars, then I will. <laughs> I'll have no issue. I'll wait. In fact, I probably won't even sleep. I'll just stay up. Thousand dollars will also work. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure. 
If it's the reverse, if you tell them, if somebody was to say that if you don't get after, this is what will happen to you, that if it's a real serious threat, then again, I'll be up. So that's a, a motivation, but it's a very exterior motivation. It has nothing to do with going for the walk. It's just that as a result of this, you'll get that. So that's the idea of reward and punishment. If I really took so much time to realize how this will change my life through that exercise, and it can only be at that time, and that would require a lot of... Uh, discussion and, and, and until I really was convinced, but if you really convinced me that this is going to turn my life around, then I also will. It might not be as quick a solution, as quick fix as, as if you promised me a million dollars, but um, but if it's real, if really getting up at four in the morning will really change my life around, so it might take me a while to like get convinced about it, but once I do, then I'll be able to. I'm always able to. I'm able to do it tomorrow, but I won't, even though I am able to. I'm using this as an analogy of, to in, answer to the question, what's more important, the action or the feeling, how they both need each other. Yes, action is what matters most, but without feeling, how are we going to act? So while in other um, schools of thought, within Orthodox Jewry, there's a big emphasis of reward and punishment, and that becomes the motivator to our action, that it's worth acting because of the consequences of reward and punishment. Hasidus looks deeper, and it says reward and punishment can still be kind of an exterior uh, motivator, but really, if you have a relationship with Hashem, then you have a real feeling where you want to act. Yes? So, when we got the Torah, and... Um there was now seven Yes. Just do it. Yes. And listen. Yeah. So there was not uh, a feeling. That's a good question. I'll make it worse. <laughs> <laughs> the Gemara tells us that when Hashem gave the Jewish people the Torah, He held the mountain over their heads like a basin. And He said to them, because it says they stood at, it doesn't say they stood at the foot of the mountain, Beregel Hahar, how it's really translated. It says, they stood which means underneath the mountain. So the Gemara says, Hashem held the mountain over their heads like a, a basin and said, if you accept the Torah, good. If not, here will be your burial place. <laughs> and believe it or not, they agreed. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of feeling is there in that? Really, it requires a shear in its own right. But what I will tell you is that Hasidus explains, which always looks at a deeper level, that the coercion that took place was actually... The, the, the mountain over their heads was actually being wowed by all of the spiritual experience. So there were the, uh, just like if you had a mountain on your head out of fear, you would just do it because you don't have a choice. So they were compelled out of all of the miracles that they witnessed to say yes, because they couldn't say no after everything everybody's done. I mean, imagine somebody walks in and they just... I mean, just keeping the analogy, they give you a million dollars and they say, do you mind getting me, uh, passing me a tissue? I thought you were going to say no. So after all the miracles that they saw, they, they definitely suggest. Um, and that's why the Gabbara, that Gabbara that says that he held the, the, held the mountain over their heads actually does say that this became a, what's the English word? Um, no, like a, a, to get out of it. Um, uh, yeah. uh, th th this became an argument for later if a Jew is told, asked by Hashem, why, did it, why aren't you doing your commitment? They could actually say, I was forced into it. So it actually is a, a get out. Yeah. Until about over a thousand years later, 
the Gemara continues at the time of Purim, they had nothing going for them. They had annihilation going for them. And they had an opportunity to convert and Haman wouldn't have touched them. And when they stood strong in those circumstances, that was when they really accepted the Torah for the first time, only a thousand years later. This is something that is discussed a lot in Hasidic works. But back to answering your question, um, the question is, um, there's a concept in Hasidus called Kabbalah's all, which we'll learn about, which is Kabbalah all, do it, accept the yoke. Yoke is something also that is, is, is forceful, the yoke of an edible, which means to do something just because you have to. So it's important, that is important to do something because we have to. Um, it's a chok. A chok, yeah. But that doesn't mean that it's outside the context of a feeling. In other words, in the context of a relationship, for example, between husband and wife, um, sometimes you want to do something, and sometimes because you have a relationship, you don't want to do it, but you do it because you have the relationship. So it doesn't mean that there's no relationship, it means it's just a different type of thing. So I think maybe the same could be said regarding Asad Hashem, that we want to... We do want to have a relationship with Hashem, but that doesn't mean that we're comfortable with something, and we do it with discipline, but again, brought out of the relationship. Obviously, I'm sure it's, uh, the same goes for our children, our parents. So back to the Tanya. The answer to the question, what is more important, feeling or action, is that they need each other. That action actually is what's most important, and the Tanya will speak a lot about that in the 30s, the late 30s, but chapter, late chapter 30s. But, uh, but those actions need feelings. Without feelings, our Jewish observance is in danger. Without motivation, it's in danger. And Chassidus doesn't settle for the motivation of reward and punishment. It, 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 it begs us to develop a feeling. And in the last chapters, we develop the feeling through studying about Hashem. Comes chapter 18 and asks, what about somebody who does not have the mental capacity to be able to study about Hashem. Absolutely. It's a famous saying of I think the Chavis Alavavis that um, after our actions come our feelings. When you do something, then you develop a feeling for it. Absolutely as well. Um, but they still both need to be worked on. That. That should happen, but it won't necessarily happen. One can't be um, uh, neglected. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Or, 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 but more importantly, one shouldn't wait for the feeling to do the action. Because sometimes it's the other way around. They're not, and more than that, sometimes it's only through um, involvement of action that we're able to really have a feeling. And these are all discussed in different places of the Tanya. But now to chapter 18. What about the person that does not have the mental ability, the capacity to be able to study about Hashem? So comes chapters 18, 19, all the way through 25 and describe a new type way of developing a relationship, a feeling for Hashem. And that is through revealing a natural hidden love that exists within the hearts of every Jew. This is a fundamental Hasidic concept, which is that every single Jew has a natural love for Hashem. 
one of the or, uh, 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 one of the secretaries and authors, um, a chassid, his name was Rabbi Nissan Mindel, who passed away many years ago. He was once in Israel, um, and they interviewed him, and they asked him, "Is there a correlation between Hasidic philosophy and Chabad outreach?" And they could seem to be very opposites because a philosophy is something that you study in a Monday morning Tanya Shir. Uh, an outreach is rolling up your sleeves and going out there and, uh, I don't know, opening up some uh, drug rehab that helps people in diff- difficult situations. Like, they're very different um, areas. But the answer was that they are very, they're deeply integrated. And, 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 and that's why for a Chabad rabbi to succeed in his mundane outreach, he needs to have his own personal daily study of Hasidus, not just Chabad rabbi, any of us for that matter. Why? Because the Tanya gives us the tools to be able to succeed in that in the big world out there. And one of those tools is here in chapter 18. We look at every Jew as somebody that naturally has a love for Hashem. And even when they tell us the opposites, we don't believe them. We, we believe that that's how they feel, but we don't believe that to actually be the case about them. We believe that we know something about them that they themselves might not know about themselves. And says the Tanya that when we are able to reveal the natural hidden love, even without any study about Hashem, then that could become a motivation for us to do mitzvahs with excitement. There's virtue in both then that becomes something valuable in its own right. The fact that we suddenly have a love for Hashem is actually one of the 630 mitzvahs. Not just one of the mitzvahs, it's one of the fundamental mitzvahs. As we say it every day in the Shema, you have to Hashem you should have Hashem your God, it's a fundamental mitzvah. But ultimately the objective of that mitzvah is to bring us to action. So even without studying about Hashem, even if a person knows nothing about Hashem, every Jew has a natural love and we need to reveal it. And that is really what we need to work on over the next few chapters. So how do we reveal this natural love that every Jew has for Hashem? So firstly, the Tanya is going to tell us a little bit about this love. That's the first step. To actually, we don't need to study about God per se, but we do still need to be introduced to the nature of this love of Hashem that we all have. And the first two things the Tanya says is that it is an inheritance and it's natural. So firstly, when we talk about natural, it means that it's not as a result of everything. The analogy is of like the love of a child to a parent, that a child's love for his parents or and vice versa, parents for children, is just part of your DNA. It's, 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 you love it because it's part of you. It's, it's, it's you. Naturally, we love ourselves. And, and for a Jew, Hashem is also me. He's a part of me. And therefore, naturally, I love him. I don't always feel that way, but that exists. So it's natural, firstly. And secondly, it's an inheritance. What's unique about the description of inheritance? So, uh, seemingly, it wouldn't be an inheritance because you don't um, pass on, you don't inherit to your children things that you earned, necessarily. Money, yes, but not relationships. If parents have a close relationship with a person, that doesn't mean that the children will have the same relationship. Even genes, not all genes are apparent to the child. But yet, yet over here, 
we all do inherit it from who? From Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the Tanya continues to explain that because of the, our forefathers and mothers' tremendous commitment to Hashem, where their commitment to, to Hashem was compared to a chariot that follows the will of its rider, where it doesn't ask any questions, but it just goes, this absolute level of commitment of our forefathers that they showed towards Hashem earned them as a gift from Hashem, a gift that all of their future descendants would have a, a natural love. They developed the love, the forefathers. But Hashem said that as a result of the love that you developed or your commitment to me, all of your children will inherit this natural love. So usually it wouldn't work that way. Relationships are not necessarily um, inherited from generation to generation. But this is something that our forefathers did give us. Now what, what, what we see from this at this point is, uh, one may have thought that this is like a lower level of love. You could either, for those that are more... Those that have the mental capacity, they could develop a love, but this is just the love that we naturally have. But we actually see that this love actually surpasses the, the mental love because the mental love is based on our understanding as opposed to this love is deeper. It's, it's not limited to understanding. It's, 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 it's part of our very being and therefore it has no limitations. Both the inheritance and the natural. It's one love. It's described both as being natural and as passed out as an inheritance from our forefathers. Uh, a little story, Bendel Futterfass, who was actually a teacher of my father, he uh, um, ran an operation of forging documents to help Jews um, get out of Russia, a very special uh, Hasidic uh, teacher. And uh, he related about himself that once while he was, so he was caught for his activities and he went to exile for many years in far, far East Russia. And uh, he, he admitted that at some point he was wondering, like, can you say that even the communists have a natural love for Hashem? Even they believe in Hashem? I mean, the communists were brutal. When you, when you read about the six Chabad Rebbe's imprisonment and how these, these guards that were descendants of Hasidim, how they treated him, it's, it's, it's horrifying. And Rebenda was wondering, like, are you going to say that they also naturally have a love for Hashem? And he relates how a few days after he was having these questions or these doubts, um, uh, it was Yom Kippur. And uh, a Russian guard came over to Remendel and he said, I saw you davening at Yom Kippur. I want you to know I'm also Jewish. And I fasted on Yom Kippur. This is one of the guards that are guarding people. And he said, the whole day I just repeated to myself, Moida Adi, because those were the only Jewish words that I knew that my grandfather taught me. So Rebendo related how this person who had seemed such an antagonist really couldn't help but at a time discover and express this natural love that he has for Hashem. But some of us might wonder what's it worth, that love, if this is what if he's busy putting his fellow Jews. Uh, so it is kind of one of those reoccur re reoccurring questions that come up all the way back from chapter 2 when we spoke about every Jew as a part of Hashem and how do we view every Jew to be, to, uh, the truth is that it does need to be come into action and when it doesn't come into action that's, that's a tragedy it's a tragedy the love is there but the fact that it's not it's, that not only is it being a 
operational, but it's actually being neglected is, is a terrible thing. But it's still there. And each thing needs to be appreciated. Yes, he was maybe being terrible to the Jews, and that's terrible. But the the fact that he fasted on Yom Kippur and he was saying Moise Adi, that was a virtue. But maybe he didn't have a choice in what he had to do. That could also be. You know, he might have been put there without any choices at all. Absolutely. I Perhaps I painted the wrong picture, which is why stories uh, grow beards. I just know that he was a guard. I, I already painted the picture that he was here, you know, being so terrible to Jews. It could be that this particular guy wasn't. It could be he was just a, a, a simple communist that just followed instructions and was doing what he was told. And Even if he was doing terrible things, he was brought up indoctrinated that you have to do with the, what you're commanded to do. Yeah. Communism was really like a religion, you know. They say what people do in the name of religion. So like communism in that way was like a religion. People really did the sugar things of, because, of, because, of, because that, that's what they believed. Let's continue. So the first thing that we learned about this love is that it's natural and it's an inheritance. The next thing we learn about this love here in chapter 18 is where does it come from within ourselves? And the answer is it comes from something called Chachma. Earlier we spoke about different levels of the soul. Chachma is the first of the intellectual faculties. Chachma is freely translated as wisdom. But a deeper look at Chachma um, actually tells us that Chachma is the window via which we allow something beyond us to shine in. In the Tanya breaks up Chachma into two words, Koach Ma, the ability to ask what. And that's really the first step in understanding. The first step in understanding is that um, open-mindedness to say, what is it? It's something that I don't know. I'm open to hear something that's above me, that's, that, that's greater than me. So Chachma is, exists in the Neshama of every Jew. And Chachma is that window that um, allows the light of Hashem to shine into our lives. And that is what powers the natural love of every Jew. Chachma is the first step of intellect, but actually Chachma is equated, generally intellect is associated with hearing. You hear about something as opposed to seeing. But Chachma is associated with seeing. Let me just explain this uh, for a moment. So, you know, if I was um, driving on the highway and uh, I saw, I don't know, I saw uh, a fire and uh, I called up the whatever line I call up and they say, no, the fire has been put out. So... They could tell me that from today till tomorrow, they could give me all types of proofs. But if I saw the fire, then whatever they explained to me from today till tomorrow is not going to make a difference. Because when you see something, you know it. When something is explained to you, then you have doubts. Okay, like this is good proof, but maybe there's a counter-argument. The love that we described until now, that we developed through studying about Hashem was a love that was developed through study, through understanding. And therefore, a person can always question it. 
But the love that's inherent within the heart of every Jew is because there's a part of us that sees Hashem. It's that level of Chachma that is a window to the light of Hashem. Since that part of our Neshama has Hashem shining into our life, that if we see Him, that we know He exists. And, and when we realize what He is, He's the source of all life. So there's nothing that we love more than the source of life. Life is the source of every other pleasure. Any pleasure a person, a person can have can only come as a result of the very basic phenomena of life itself. And so, since we all have this window of Chachma within our souls, it means that we're all, on some level, our Neshama sees how Hashem is the source of our life. So that's why a Jew naturally has a love for Hashem. That said, it's also considered called the hidden love. Because we don't always see that which our Shava sees, if I could put it that way. There's this window that allows the light of Hashem to shine in. But not, only, not always do we see that window. And the Tanya has a point of saying that whatever level Jew he is, he has that level of Chachmah inside of him. And what's the proof? Throughout the ages... We've seen that Jews that even were, were the Jews that didn't practice Judaism at all, when suddenly challenged to revoke their Judaism, were willing to literally die. Al Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying Hashem's name. Why, says the Tanya? Because of the level of Chachma of the Neshama, because they knew that Hashem is a true reality. So the, the the bottom line is from everything that we're describing is that every Jew naturally believes in Hashem, naturally has a love for Hashem, and is even willing to sacrifice everything for Hashem, as long as he's aware of that. So what changed? Why was it that a moment before this sinner um, did everything wrong in the book, practiced nothing of Judaism, and suddenly he's willing to give up everything for Judaism? changed was that suddenly he, his Chachma became revealed. He realized that this is a moment that uh, uh, something happened that caused his Neshama to shine. You know, earlier in one of the previous classes we asked, is change achievable? And one of the suggestions was maybe it's sometimes only through things that happen to us. But, um, and I argue that it's not only through things that happen to us, but certainly sometimes there are things that evoke a person's Neshama and at that moment, you'll completely turn things around. So the question is, we don't want to wait till such things happen. Rather, how can we, in our everyday living, reveal this part of the Neshama that makes us naturally love Hashem, so that we will suddenly be completely motivated, because it's also a relationship, it's a love, it's a feeling, to do what we need to do. Okay. True. As, as today, unfortunately, there's some people who will, like you, one might think that one would never remarry. I mean, never marry. Yeah. Uh-huh. That, that has become a reality. Uh-huh. So, where's that natural love? Uh-huh. Or do we, so, 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 the answer is that um, really every sin that we do is something that we would never do if not for the fact that we realize that this undermines our relationship with Hashem. But 
for different people at different points, they realize that this is a line that I don't want to cross, how this really does affect my relationship with Hashem. So most people, even if they're people that have been completely secular all their life, or call themselves that at least, uh, when evoked with a question to renounce their Judaism, that is a trigger. It suddenly says, hey, like at this point I am undermining my relationship with Hashem. For some people, unfortunately, that also doesn't trigger it. So, that, so they feel, even if they convert to another religion, they're still Jewish. And by the way, that's why the uh, Christians in, their, uh, in the movements to try to get Jews to convert always made a point of saying, you'll remain a Jew. Because they knew the moment they say that you'll no longer be a Jew, then they don't have a chance because every Jew, the Shabbos suddenly perks up. So they convince people and say, no, this also won't undermine your Judaism. You'll still be a Jew but you'll also do whatever else. Uh, and certainly that I think exists also the questions of intermarriage in different contexts. A person certainly feels like I'm still Jewish, I'll still remain a Jew. But if they realized how much it affected them, then they wouldn't do it. So just to wrap it up, um, the Tanya in chapter 19 says that this very much relates to the concept of selflessness or selfishness. Yes. Do most of us not have some sort of sin every day, or or not every day? Every day, but often. <laughs> every day, every day, in some small, insignificant, perhaps insignificant way. And therefore. Well, how do you prevent that? Well, that's really the journey that we're going to do now. By being more in touch with our natural love of Hashem, then that motivates us to uh, do the right thing. Yes. I think one of the dangerous things that we do for ourselves is we put our own selves into a box. And as soon as we define what we are, we give ourselves permission to carry on behaving in exactly the same way, in appropriate way. Because mm-hmm. that's the box we put ourselves in, not ourselves in mm-hmm. and we therefore, yeah, we, we, we've given ourselves permission to carry on that way. Look, it's very hard. It's very hard to do what we need to do, uh, whether it's because of labels or whether it's simply difficult without any labels. And, and and, uh, but it's tremendous that we, when we do what we need to do, and it's a tremendous victory, it's a, a tremendous achievement, but we need the courage to do that. And uh, when we're able to... Re- maybe recognition of not being good is, is the first step. But if the recognition brings us to growing more than often, that recognition of not being good shuts us down even further and doesn't allow us to grow. So, uh, so I think uh, the Tanya already in chapter 2 told us about, about our godly soul and only in chapters uh, 7 and 8 told us about the effect of, of, of sin and how terrible it is and I think it actually needs to be in that order first we need to recognize the first step is to recognize how we have a natural love for Hashem this level of this natural love that we have so we know that we're actually really a good person and we've got tremendous um, um, 
We've got an amazing relationship that could help us achieve amazing things. And then once that's in place to say, hey, is this something that is de developing my relationship or is it something that's undermining my relationship? And if it's undermining my relationship, then I've got to think about how I can change it. I think we're out of time. There's a story of Yossel the Gadaf. I don't think I've shared it before. I'll conclude <coughs> with it briefly. There was a famous Gadaf, a thief. And his name was Yossel. And he was part of a team of Jewish thieves in some town in Eastern Europe. And he was once trying to break into the church and he was caught red-handed. And uh, they arrested him and uh, they asked him, well, how do you do such a thing? So he explained, look, I thought that, you know, maybe there's something to it. So I decided I would try serve one of the idols and then it didn't work. And so, like I thought, if it's not working, I don't want other people to also be fooled by it. So I thought I've got to get rid of it. So in the middle of the night, I went in to try, which is obviously a bummer by saying he was just trying to make some money. Anyhow, the guy said, um, uh, but still, how could you do such a thing? And he said, look, I, I care about people's pardos and their well-being. I don't want people to invest their time and energy in things that are futile. Anyhow, the time came, he stood in front of the courts and he said he was told that he was going to be burned alive for this terrible act of, of robbery, of, of thievery. But if you convert to Christianity, then we will uh, um, remove you of all your sins and you will be able to live a happy life, live a ha have happily ever after. And he responded, I am Yossel the Ganif. I've done many things in my life, but I will never give up my Judaism. And they took his hands, they put, him into the, put them into the hot tar, burned his hands, and they said, we'll give you to doctors, and we'll, we'll, we'll remedy your hands, we'll, we'll, we'll help you get better. And again, he shouted out, Ah, Yassel the Gadot, I may have done many things in my life, but I will never evoke my Judaism. And, and he was burned alive, and he was killed. And on his caver, on his um, tombstone, was written, Yassel HaGadaf HaKadosh, the Holy Gadaf Yassel. <laughs> so um, that just indicates that not about excusing, as people always ask, other people's behavior, but on the contrary, by never labeling ourselves by being the Ganaf, but by re re realizing that we all are holy. Yeah. Okay,